In case you don't know, the quickest way to get a copyright strike is to use an Eric Clapton song. Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSploitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host Martin. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, we are continuing Difficult Films Month. Well, actually, it's the finale of Difficult Films Month. We've uh, gone through three already. Uh, we did Hereditary. We did Funny Games. And last week, we did Requiem for a Dream. And we're back today with our final in the series. And I don't know... Um, I guess I would say the the ultimate difficult film for for this uh, series of uh, films that we've covered. I don't know. We'll uh, talk about that once we get into the film in depth and whether we think it's extremely difficult, somewhat difficult, not difficult at all. So look out for that. And I'm not going to announce what the film is right now. (laughs) Just because we like to keep it a secret, even though you see the title. Even though we've promoted every episode when yeah. we talk about our, what if you, we're doing. Yeah, but if, you, if you're just tuning in for the first time, you have to know the MO that we, we do. We don't, we don't tell you the, what we're covering, and we, we keep it a secret, and we kind of slide along until we can finally fit it in there. Pat's yeah, a good 10 minutes out of the podcast. That's right. We get our, get our money's worth from it. But yeah, we, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult film. So, um, as we come to a close, how have you enjoyed your... Tenure with Difficult Films Month. Good. Kind of, kind of got you outside of things that you probably wouldn't have just randomly watched or, you know, picked to see, right? After watching them, yeah, no, I would have watched them. No, yeah, I mean, I mean, like, just you know, randomly, you're you're scrolling through Netflix and you're like, oh, you know, here's funny games would you have just been like ah yeah i want to pop that one on i mean i would have had to have looked up and see what you know right so it kind of it kind of gave you things that just you know wouldn't have popped out to you or or hasn't been on your radar as much and i think that's why we kind of do some of these episodes some, sometimes like you know we watch things that i've not seen like today's episode i've not seen this film and and i picked it because i know that it was considered a difficult film and I wanted to see what that was like. So I, I picked a good mix of ones that I have seen that I felt were difficult films. And then ones that I hadn't, that other people had said were difficult films that I wanted to experience myself. I think that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast is it gives us a chance to experience movies that we might or otherwise overlook or just like not feel like we have time for things that we wouldn't seek out in our normal lives. Um, and that's why we do the things we do, right? For our 70 listeners listeners or so. There's more than that. Shut up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I've had fun with the uh, difficult film. 73. Fun. Yeah, right. To be exact. To be Come exact. On. You have metrics. Come on. I, uh, like that. I've had, I've had fun with it. Um, 
and I think I would like to do uh, a difficult films part two at some point here. Um, you know, maybe somewhere down the line next year. I don't know. We'll have to do a montage of like I will remember. <laughs> yeah, right. A look back at difficult films, part one. That's for that's a job for somebody else. So like we'll hire we'll we'll go on Fiverr and we'll hire somebody to sift through the eight <laughs> hours or so that we, almost eight hours of content that we have and pick out the best spots because I'm not I'm like I'm, content too. Yeah, that's not. That's not for me. Well, for one thing, because we have so much good content. I just am not objective enough to pick it out. I pick out the best one. It's just it's so awesome. good. All of it's so good. If I, so good. if it was up to me, the I will remember you montage would have all the episodes <laughs> again. <laughs> the whole episode again. Because we don't put out bad content. But, exactly. But also, I am just extremely lazy about editing things together and going back and listening to myself again. Like, that is one thing I really don't like to do very often is to go back and listen to, like, what I said. Because what's the point of that? I know what I said. I said it. I know what I said. Most of the time, I know what I said. <laughs> most of the time, I remember what I said. So, well, I don't need to go back you, and listen to it again. Well, most of the time, you don't even say anything. You're just going... Mm-mm. Smacking just, on that beer. Just, just smacking your lips on your beer and uh and gulping it down, right? <laughs> swallowing, swallowing indigestion. Hard. <laughs> yeah. This podcast needs to be sponsored by Tums. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> That's true. Both of us have a nice good heartburn history, so it does need to be sponsored. We make sure too every uh every time we record an episode to make sure we eat like you know something with like a nice uh, tomato sauce or you know. <laughs> yeah, the the indigestion <laughs> is rising throughout. Garlic, we, garlic and onion. It's, it's too bad we don't do live video because we could have the indigestion meter on the side. It's like, how are you feeling right now, Martin? And it's just like, ah, bump that up a little bit. You know, gotta pound your chest like you know, like ah, oh, like oh, how's it going? Oh, a little too much, a little too much sauce tonight, a little too much. Yeah. And by the end of the episode, like when we we have to get off at 80, 80 minutes or so, that's pro- that's because our you know our bladder has f- filled up. We have bad prostates, and we were like running to the bathroom. Ah, we gotta piss. Kidneys so we, are sh- kidneys are shot. So we got the bad heartburn. We got the prostate issues. Makes for a great podcast. <laughs> thanks for Thursday. thanks Welcome. for listening to your Blood and Black Rum podcast, your new medical diagnosis <laughs> show, where we talk about all the things that are wrong. Don't go to WebMD. Come listen to our knees crack when we get out of the chair. That's right. Well, you know, <clears throat> segueing into our show today, um, the other, you know, besides our own medical conditions, I think we can probably blame it. And, and I think, you know, the audience and you are thinking the same thing. We can blame it on one thing. And that's the evil of women, really. Oh, I was going to say camping. <laughs> or camping. Yeah, both. It's both. It's camping. And the evil of women. Primarily the evil of women, but uh, camping as well. We could blame it on that. I know the audience was thinking the same thing. Because because you know what happens when you're an adult and you have family? Who wants you to go out into the fucking woods with the family? The woman. That's right. It's the woman that want, drags you out there. You don't want to do it. You want to stay home. But she says, no, it'll be good for the family. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's what happens in that Amityville horror remake with Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> He's so dour that entire film just walking around <laughs> like, like. <sighs> no, but the the evil of women brings us our episode today because uh, it is a film about 
women, trauma, depression, and grief. And all of those things are really, you know, conjured up by women. And they have been for centuries. Millennia. That's right. We're obviously talking about the Lars von Trier film, Antichrist, from 2009. Hold on. It's not Antichrist. Antichrist. Chris. With the, the symbol. With the, with the lady symbol. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we have to get the, uh, the correct spelling. So this one, this movie, um, I had never seen before. Um, but I, like I had said earlier in the intro, um, it's a movie that I had heard about and heard that people had been uh, traumatized by it. You know, they didn't want to watch it again. There was uh, definitely some fucked up things that occur in the movie. Uh, and, and, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, you should probably stop here and not, not listen to the rest of this podcast because we're going to go into it in detail like we normally do with spoilers and you really don't want to have this movie spoiled for you luckily i did not i didn't see anything about you know why it was fucked up uh before i saw it so i really love to go into movies without really knowing what's going on with that uh, whole movie like i don't want to know exactly what's happening so it's good to go into this movie without knowing anything true you know like the actual plot line of it because you just want to experience it so I had not seen it. I wanted to check it out. So that's why I picked it for this show. And I wasn't truthfully, I didn't know if it was going to be a difficult film or not uh, until we got into it and I watched it. Um, and I, you haven't seen it either. And I actually, I don't think either of us have seen any Lars von Trier films prior to Antichrist. Uh, no, I hadn't seen it. Uh, but I am acutely aware of who Lars von Trier is, the most of his filmography, you know, I've, I know the films and kind of like a general overlay. Um, it's just an antichrist I'm familiar with and I've seen like reviews of, you know, um, like video essays and stuff on it. Uh, nothing that would overall like, you know, it's been a long time. So like that, since I've seen like that kind of stuff. So it's nothing that I would say that like, um, specifics that stuck out but i remember knowing that it's a art house uh very stylistic uh difficult film to to watch for a lot of people so out of all the excuse me out of all the films that we've uh done this is probably the one that i'm easily the most familiar with yeah and i think um that kind of stems through a lot of von Trier's work um that he is somewhat of an art house filmmaker um somewhat of an indie filmmaker and he makes films that are sometimes um can be considered like sort of like trolly for the sake of it um you know somewhat confrontational um and i think like that part of being artistic part of part of offering your artistic vision is sometimes being confrontational and um going places that other people wouldn't be willing to go and i think that's in some capacity um von trier is similar to like hanukkah who we did cover in funny games um although i think lars von trier comes from a different standpoint of filmmaking um and his films are much more rooted in things like perversity violence um sexual gratification um, and his films tend to 
overtly sexualized too. So unlike, you know, other films that will, you know, have simulated sex or, you know, very brief sex sexuality, uh, Von Trude just goes the whole, whole freaking way. And, and, and Antichrist, he does that too. And we'll talk about, you know, what that means for the film to have so much, um, emphasis on sexuality and hardcore elements. But one thing that we do have in this uh, movie is Willem Dafoe. And we've never done a, like a Willem Dafoe month or anything. But we're both pretty big fans of Willem Dafoe. He's a great actor. Yeah. Who isn't? Well, that's that's a good question. Who is Who out there isn't a fan of Willem Dafoe? You know, he's kind of... Um, he doesn't show up a whole lot, right? Like, especially now, he's not doing a lot of films. But the ones he's he does... Take, I was going to say he's taking the Daniel Day-Lewis approach, being yeah. cautious with his roles. Very, only save, very only saving it for reluctant. Sam Raimi films. That's right. He's real, I mean, he is in the new Spider-Man. Um, they had to get him back, obviously. I don't know what kind of stack of cash they offered him, but he decided he wanted to come back. He was in the French Dispatch, which we just recently covered. Yep, and he was in the Lighthouse too. Um, which I—that's a film I, I do wanna. Yeah, that's that's one uh, I would I would like to see as well. I haven't seen that one yet either. Um, you know, it's I, it sounds a lot similar to this one, really. Um, very slow, plotting, artistic movie. Very, you know, like character driven. Um, yeah. Um, similar to this, we'll have to drink there and dance it for that one. Mm-hmm. Keep it New England. I feel like we're a fisherman out on the on a fishing boat, getting blasted by sea waves and mooring out to sea and seeing that lighthouse on the distance, and then the fog rolls in, and we're subjected <clears> to <throat> pirate ghosts from Carpenter's movie. <laughs> Isn't that a? I painted a very nice screenplay for somebody. All right. Um, before we get into Antichrist in minute detail, you mean anti women? Anti anti women. Let's talk about the beer that we have on the show today. Um, the fun talk. Yeah, the fun. Yeah, the fun talk. <laughs> Not the difficult talk. The film. The fun talk. So on today's show, we um, we got a beer that um, is probably not a surprise to most people. It's another IPA. Um, it's done by Sloop Brewing Company. No, they're not a shocker. I know, right? And this one is – so Sloop has a, a pretty uh, substantial beer that they – like is their flagship called Juice Bomb. And for and, – and actually to preface, Juice Bomb is like a, a NIPA. It's a very – hazy it's um tropically uh with grapefruit notes and things like that so it's very juicy and they have pretty much made it their flagship beer but they've just come out like they and they like to do um various takes on the juice bomb um they've come out with a new beer called the west coast juice bomb and this is an attempt to take the west the juice bomb style of all the hops that they use in the regular juice bomb and then dehaze it and make it into a more of a West Coast style IPA, which is not hazy at all. It's uh, you know very nicely filtered without tons of yeast, 
and um, kind of lessened uh, the tropical notes, more citrusy notes, uh, like standard citrus notes. And so that's what they've done with the West Coast Juice Bomb. And we wanted to try that out because that's an interesting idea. You know, we both like the Juice Bomb quite a bit. We both like Sloop Brewing Company a lot. And we also like West Coast IPAs, which have, um, pr- like now, contemporarily, been kind of phased out in favor of the Nipahs. We don't You don't see a lot of new West Coast IPAs coming out. So we wanted to try this out because I thought it was an interesting experiment. And I'm curious to, to hear your take on it because I know that we tried this before we, we went on the show. We had a, a, a can before the show, and uh, you said it was an interesting idea, but what are, what are your thoughts on it? Taking a sip to mm. kind of gather my thoughts. Get it on your palate. Yeah. Um, Bubblies. Okay, so, so something that we have long lamented on the podcast not besides the fact that we love sloop and we love our night buzz and we'll fucking drink every one of them whether they're good bad or indifferent because you know what they have something to offer but we lament a lot on here about west coast ipas we don't really do them that often because as you said they're kind of hard like a dime a dozen these days to find like a west coast ipa just like a good pale ale it's kind of fallen out of favor in the craft beer world as they dive more down the rabbit hole to try to up the most tropicaliness of their IPAs. So I've been looking forward to this because it's been a long time since I've had like a classic West Coast IPA. And after having this, I'm glad to have had it. It's very good. Nipas are better. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so now like this has caused you to have a change of heart about which one you prefer? Well, it's not that I had a change, like a change of heart, because I mean, like I said, it's been so long since I've like I had like sat down and had like you know like a Sierra Nevada torpedo or you know something like that's class, you know, or like Stone, or, you know, Stone for the longest time when we were first starting, you know, to get into, you know, drinking craft beers, you know, it was like Harold is like so, like oh they're the best, have the arrogant bastard, it's so amazing, you know, mm-hmm. and I think now like. Stuff like that would be, you know, shunned. Like, you know, like this is tripe. I mean, I do like it. It definitely offers something different and different from your Nipa. It's definitely more hop forward. You don't. There's no tropical notes. It's very piney, very rosiny, which is an aspect of IPAs I do like a lot. I do like that nice rosin taste to it. Um. It's bitter, but it's got a crisp, clean finish. It's very good. And at 7.7%, it's a 7.2, sorry. It's pretty easy drinking, and it is nice. However, and this maybe uh, this isn't anything against Sloop. I think at this point, because we've been, it's been four or five years of us drinking Nipahs now, I prefer Nipahs now. They just mm. add, have much more going on for them. Flavor-wise, you know, with all the different tropical fruit notes that, you know, I kind of enjoy it more. So this is like, I like it, and I would drink more, you know, West Coast IPAs, kind of mix it up. But at this point, I, I've, I'm i in the, the hazy camp. Mm. Bring them, you know. I mean, I like both. I think this is an interesting experiment because it does have the same juice bomb uh, hops in it. And what they've done is they've really tried to dry it up a little bit so it gets the drier flavors of the 
West Coast style instead of the very extremely juicy elements that uh, Nipa has. And they've it's taken very a- clean. Yes. Very, yeah, yep. very clean. And they've taken away the haze too, so they've really removed all of that excess yeast that really makes a hazy a hazy because that's really what's floating in your haze is a bunch of yeast that doesn't really get cleaned out and they just, you know, instead of uh, sucking it all out, they leave it in there and they say, hey, good to go. Call it pulp. Um, Call it beefier farts. <laughs> that's right. So what they've done here is they've really dried this up to make it a very dry uh, West Coast style. And I think it works well. You know, like all of those hops pair well together, even though they're in a drier style than the Nipa. Um, it does have a very crisp element to it. Um, it does have a, a distinctive bitterness at the end from the hops that you don't normally get from a nipa some of the uh the haziness and uh citrusiness the tropical notes of the nipa kind of cover up the bitterness of those hops towards the end so that the citrus comes out more so to lessen the bitterness um this one is actually fairly bitter um you know it's it's got that bitter snap to it that you get from the west coast style uh which i like i you know i don't mind that but i can understand what you're saying too um, Nipas just seem to go down even easier. And I'm not saying that this one isn't very drinkable because it is, uh, even at, like you said, at 7.2%, uh, it's extremely drinkable. It is very refreshing. However, Nipas just have that extra, extra umph from the juice that makes them even easier to drink. And I think that's really the difference in why Nipas have become a lot more standard fare now is because they do have a lower tolerance, uh, for, people who don't like love the hop bitterness, those people can easily be sucked into Nipas, um, you know, if they're open to the hop flavors rather than people who just really do not like the bitterness of West Coast IPAs. There's, there's, that's going to be a barrier for people to get in on that craze. And if they don't like that, then they're just really not going to like the West Coast style. But with Nipas, you have a little bit more of a cleanness to it that allows you to, you know, get through the bitterness of the, of the hop. So, um, I can understand why Nipas have become like all of the rage. They're just easy drinking and they have a lower tolerance threshold. But um, I think this West Coast juice bomb is a really interesting idea. And especially from Sloop, who really doesn't do a lot of West Coast style IPAs. They are primarily situated solely in the Nipa camp. Um, they like almost every single beer that they release is a New England IPA, very hazy and very tropically and sometimes to their um you know sometimes to their benefit sometimes not uh because they're sometimes their beers all come off very similarly tasting you know with the grapefruit flavors and things like that but i think this is an, as, as a cool experiment from them to try out the west coast style and i think for the most part it works i like this beer quite a bit and um you know i've never again i've never really had a bad beer from sloop and they've never really let <laughs> no. me down so no um this continues that trend Outside after Genesee, they're probably the second most prevalent beer, brewer that we've done on here. Yeah, I in in Amagang. but like, like I said, there's a reason for that because Sloop really just never does let me down. They always make a very good beer. Um, and, and like I said, like don't let it be mistaken. I really do like this, and I do like West Coast IPAs. I do like that nice that it's more you know you get you taste the hops, you, you get to ex- actually experience the hops that are in there, and it has something nice to offer and it's right now you know it's very nostalgic because again this is like what for a long time this type of ipa is what you were getting um that being said 
I, like I said, I think Naipa's just have a little bit more to offer. Maybe that's just, again, that could just because it's been five straight years of, you know, not, endless Naipas. <laughs> but I, I think also, too, like you said, Naipas with their fruitiness allow, like, people who like sours, if you like sours, hey, I'm not really sure if I'm going to like an IPA. Try this Naipa. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, especially seeing as sours over that same time that Naipas have boomed, sours have, you know, boomed greatly too so yep sours have boomed and even you know the combination sour ipas Mm -hmm. (laughs) have really taken uh a threshold too so um yeah i mean i definitely like look for this one it's it's an interesting experiment from a brewer that really doesn't make standard west coast ipas so interested to see what else they can do all right, so moving on to Antichrist, our difficult film. Stop s- saying the goddamn Antichrist with wi- Antichrist women. See, that's how people feel about this podcast, though. They say they're Antichrist. They really only care about me. Well, who's Chris? <laughs> we have no Chris on the show. We only have Martin. There you go. Don't don't say my Christian name. Jesus. <laughs> I don't go about saying yours. I say mine. Well, I know, but I don't say your last name. It's fine if you do. It's all plastered all over the website. Yeah, it's Ryan Sandberg. Yeah. Named after the sec- Hall of Fame second baseman. Me, I'm also the front man for Coldplay, so, you know. Mm-hmm. This is just a side gig. I write yellow in the meantime. He was all yellow. <laughs> was that a recording, or was that really you? That was really me. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's Perfect. One and the, one and the same. So, Antichrist, um, we are talking about the Lars von Trier film from 2009 about trauma and grief and depression. And notably, this movie was written by Lars von Trier when he was going through a period of depression um, and dark dark feelings. Now, here's the question I have, because anytime this kind of gets brought up with, like, any media, because, you know... You hear it often with certain creators, like, you know, when it comes to, like, anime, you think of, like, uh, Yoshiki Tomino or Hideki Anno, like, oh, when they're making Gundam and or when they're making Ava, they were really depressed. I know when that's not, like, a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of open <laughs> to interpretation by the audience, whether that's true or not. Well, no, I, I, I don't... I don't I... I'm not saying that, but I mean, like, is it actually documented? Because, like, a lot of the times it seems like at this point, like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of, like, you know. It would be kind of great to, just... like, have somebody really take us through the days. They're like, uh, was going to get up and write today, but stayed in but bed just... all day and watched and ate Doritos and then went to sleep. And you'd be like, that guy was depressed. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest with you. It is hard, kind of hard to believe because, like, when you're in a state of depression, you generally don't really want to do literally anything, like, right? You don't, you don't, I feel like. The creative juices probably aren't flowing. Like, for, for some people, like, I know for me particularly, like, if I'm in a state of depression, like, it's kind of weird because, like, I, I don't want to do literally anything. It's like, do you want to go outside? No. Do you want to watch TV? No. Do you want to play video games? No. Do you want to read a book? No. I literally don't want to do anything. And I feel like that is hard to do when you are depressed and you're like, I gotta write this movie. 
you know. Well, it's, it's, it's just fun. Well, it's just funny because apparently, like you know, apparently out of his, I'm not trying to downplay. No, no, I, yeah, I, definitely. I, 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 I'm sure he uh, it was, but just like thinking about the like logistically, like so he made three films like this, Melancholia, and then Nymphomaniac on like a six year depression kick. God damn! And you think the same thing with like Tomino? It's like. All right, well, he made Gundam, then he made A Day On, and then he made Zeta Gundam. He was depressed as shit with Double Zeta. All of a sudden, he found happiness, and then he made, you know, Victory Gundam, and he went back to depression. What happened, you know? Maybe the the writing and being in that dour experience of writing a very bleak movie is is the cathartic release that you need. Um, like, like I think, at least like for, like, uh, I don't know, when it came to Evangelion, he probably, like, eventually f- fell into the depression because like i ran out of money i blew it all on fucking robots what am i gonna do now mm-hmm. and then after he got success he's like oh my god i'm gonna be george lucas now i'm gonna be tied to this fucking franchise forever and i'm never gonna be able to escape it and sure enough 30 fucking years later he's still working on ava <laughs> i feel like antichrist has the same like it has the elements of like working through a depression. Like if you, if you take take into consideration like all the things that it goes through, it's almost like, um, you know, as he's writing about the idea of like going, taking your grief and your depression and like kind of trying to draw it out and figure out like what are you afraid of and where's your anxiety coming from. Like that's similar to the process of making a movie too, like making like writing a film. So perhaps he was going through that same approach that they're going through in the movie while he was writing this movie. I don't know, but you're right. It is, it is mind boggling to be like, I'm depressed. I'll write a movie and, and good for them too, you know, to be able to do that. Um, and have that catharsis of being able to do that. But, but I know for, for some people, you know, that's just not even an option with depression. It's just, I'm going to lay in bed. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't, I, I was just saying, I don't find myself at my most creative when I'm dour. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The mind's too preoccupied trying to sort out how to like, how do I become so undowered? Yeah. But, uh, with antichrist, you know, th- th- what we must preface this movie with is, uh, you must like Willem Dafoe ass in order to truly appreciate Antichrist because we do get a, quite a bit of Willem Dafoe skin throughout. It's 90% of this film is Willem Dafoe's ass. You can trace it's the, written into his contract. Trace actually. the freckles and moles on his ass now. I can I can put it to paper. Because it's even I, on the movie poster. Yeah, that's right. They've cut it nicely. But And I, I saw somebody point this out, and it is really uh, a, a prescient um, – thing that they pointed out that Ooh, what a word you just used. yeah the the poster and that shot that occurs in the scene of them having sex at the tree and then all of the the limbs start coming out from behind the tree and then the roots is very boschian which is you know like the artist the the artist bosch and and his paintings it is very boschian i i think that that sums up antichrist quite well and that it is a very artistic uh, movie focused on symbolism and imagery and various elements and images throughout this movie are very very clearly defined and uh, fit well into like the the scheme of depression paintings and 
um, very sinister, um, f- you know, forest-like elements of, of historical paintings. I think that comes out very well in Antichrist. Uh, and also, re- you know, the religious aspect of of those uh, paintings, I think, is, is something that really stands out about Antichrist. Um, because it ultimately is about a film about artistry. Um, as you said, we have uh, two... Uh, you know, very, very um, thoughtful and smart uh, protagonist. One is a therapist who, you know, Willem, Willem Dafoe's character is, is pretty much always thinking that he's like the smartest one in the room. And that's kind of mentioned multiple times in the movie where he thinks he's smarter than his wife's therapist <laughs> um, who is prescribing medications that he doesn't agree with. Um so we have two very, very smart protagonists, um, studied protagonists. Um, Members of the intelligentsia. That's right. And Charlotte Gainsbourg's character um, is also, you know, a, a studious person. She's writing a thesis about uh, women genocide um, called gynocide. Uh, and she's, you know, obviously another very smart person who... Uh, when they get into a room together, they get into very, you know, philosophical discussions about the ideas of grief and trauma because they've recently gone through a trauma of their own that their son fell out a window and, and died uh, while they were having hardcore sex. Just just absolutely steel rotting it while the, the kid fell sex, out the window. The kind of sex you should be having when like your babies like have your babysitter watch the kid. <laughs> that's right <laughs> when the kid is not in the other room to listen to it that's, that's that kind of sex this, the kind of angry sex where things are crashing all around you and you're not noticing it uh, you're moving and also you're moving locations you're moving from the shower to the bed you know without knowing it <laughs> to, to the laundry room which for an apartment Jesus Christ what a bougie fritzy yeah, they apartment got a, this you is. see the bar that they have like the whole armoire bar that they have it's amazing yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, like that's not an apartment at that point. It's you know, the Ritz Carlton. But we've got to t- talk about that opening scene because it is very um, a a big scene as part of the, you know, the trauma of Antichrist and the what makes the film a difficult film. Uh, and I think that this this scene is really going to be either liked or not, depending on how you feel about it. Because it is a very operatic scene. It's very dramatic. It's set in black and white. Uh, there's, you know, not only that, but the imagery of, like, the s- snow falling down uh, out the windows. The kid, you know, slowly getting out of his crib. I thought we were watching the spirit for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have, you know, all of this intercut with Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg just absolutely fucking there's no other word for it just just completely fucking in the other rooms and i find that rather than being a, a traumatic tra- tragic moment this this scene is sort of um undercut by the fact that it does have this ridiculous hardcore pornographic sex scene going on at the same time because Von Trier is not um, 
scared to shy away from the hardcore penetration that we get to see. You know, we, we get a nice thick dick going into a vagina. Uh, unfortunately, not Willem Dafoe, so it's a body double for both of them. But uh, Allegedly, th- his dick was too big. That's right. But I think the, the penetrative sex that we get, the, you know, that that is just extremely, like, over-the-top and unnecessary for this scene takes this from tragic to unintentionally comical for me at least i didn't really find it to be like the a tragic breathtaking moment like i did with hereditary when i first saw the beheading scene um where i was like taken aback and shocked i i don't think that that occurs in antichrist and i feel like it's a pivotal moment for the movie to set up this trauma so i don't I did not really love the fact that we're getting all of this intercut with like almost hardcore porn at that point. I like, I think Von Trier likes to push the envelope, but I, in, in this particular scenario, it's totally unnecessary to the, to what's happening on screen. We don't need to see, you know, a vagina just getting absolutely flapped. How did how did you feel about like how how that plays out? It's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, with the handle score and the black and white imagery and the slow mo and uh, I think it, it it goes. It's 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 like I kind of understand adding the sexual element because it's kind of tying into her site, you know. Uh, Carol Gainsbourg's psychosis Charlotte. later. Charlotte, sorry, sorry. T- it ties into her psychosis later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Throughout the, the, the sexuality. Yes, yeah. yeah. it ties into it. But I mean, it comes across as so campy and fucking ridiculous that you know you have like, and then Willem Dafoe's just going to Pound Town, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you got the baby coming out of the crib, and then like. Mom and dad are fucking over there. Guess I'm gonna throw myself out of the window. And then, as you know, they're going from one room to the next, fucking all over. I think they might have even fucked in his crib while you know he's like, it's, <laughs> "Hey, where's the baby?" I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's slow mo, slow mo falling. You know, it's just that is just like also too like so stupid just like the slow-mo watching the kid fall it's like why it's like watching a graceful swan die yeah that's that's the other thing too is like okay yes we we can glean the fact that from this dramatic performance this kid is falling out the window we don't need to see like explicitly uh yeah he hit the he hit the pavement like a sack of potatoes you know you know he's totally splattered should have hit a car and so you can hear the car alarm go off. Like, you know. Yeah, I, I just think it goes so far that it now becomes comical. To you know, it's not meant. Obviously, it's not meant to be funny. And I'm. But it, it's it not, could happen. That could happen to you. It could happen, and it happened to Clapton, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if Eric Clapton was having sex when he was kid. Yeah, no, I don't, <laughs> we don't want to spread those rumors, but out the window but 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 yeah i mean i think it just goes a little too overboard and then so you know that kind of sets you up for the the rest of the movie and that's kind of you know the the intro it's called a prologue in this case because we do get multiple chapters in antichrist um but it kind of sets you up in a i don't know 
in a way that is not ideal in my eyes. I, I don't I don't love that opening, and it certainly is not a beautiful sex scene as I've seen some other people refer to it as. It is gratuitous, and and like you said, I understand the element of sex, sex in this movie, and the the idea of you know sexuality and um, punishment. Those are all kind of elements that do tie back to the theme though i just i just don't think that we need to see like the explicitness that von trier brings to us like because it just is unnecessary it pushes the envelope i understand that you know you want to you want to risk gratuity to you know to shock but i don't really feel that it adds any and actually i think it detracts from what the film is really trying to do with that scenario yeah, I think you get a lot, like, you know, some some people would probably say, like, well, he's uncompromising. But at the same time, like, to what extent? Like, again, like, there's showing for the sake of showing and, like, having a point, and then for shock and awe. And if it's just for shock and awe, then, like, it, it Then the fails. uncompromising nature of it doesn't really matter. No, right? because, because, again, I mean, as we'll talk about when we kind of talk more about the film, the film has, like... 30 different theses and motifs going on so like it's kind of like you know just like i understand where like thematically you know sexuality being one of the main crux of this film and you know but i don't think how it's execute and like you know executed is in the epil in the prologue excuse me is that well done because it's just it's a roundabout way to get to where you need to go, mm-hmm. and ju- it's kind of like shock and awe for the sake of shock and awe. Yeah. Like, in the artistry, like, a lot of it, too, in this film, he has a very keen eye. He's a very, from this film alone, being our, our only experience in his films, he has a good eye on, like, you know, how to shoot things and give it, like, a great, like, you know, artistry. But, like, like overall... The ex- the total experience in this prologue is kind of you know unnecessary, like in how he does you know goes about it. And I think that translates to uh, like to transition into the rest of the movie. I think that translates to the rest of the movie and how it plays out as well. Because I feel like you're right. We get a lot of very nice imagery that's interspersed with a fairly bland like first forty five minutes of of the film. To the point where unpatient viewers are really not going to probably get through that stuff. Um, I think that Von Trier, you know, he well, this, wanted. I, I don't. I don't think. That, I don't think this movie to begin with. Would, you could say like people who are going to be unpatient. I mean, this film is asking for your patience. That's true, <laughs> and I would say like the my even my patience was wearing thin about you know forty five minutes in where we get a lot of you know very. Um, bland dialogue from our protagonists of trading uh, back and forth about grief and trauma and very what I would call, you know, rudimentary elements of grief. Um, Yes, we all know the stages of grief and we all know that people go through them differently and in different orders. And I think that's kind of expected when you, you know, after you see that first scene and you know, like, okay, well, this family is going to go through a period of trauma that we're going to have to live through with them. And I don't know that the dialogue that is given to our our characters is really all that interesting for like the first thirty minutes or so. <coughs> yes, it does set up the 
the <coughs> yeah. oh, excuse me sorry it does set up the characterization of um the you know Willem Dafoe's character as being a therapist who thinks he really knows what is best for his wife during this period of grief but is also very aloof and very distant and withdrawn from everything including his own son's death um it does give us that and it does give us this dynamic between husband and wife where the wife is very is somewhat cowed and um you know unable to take charge as the the husband does and it sets up that idea for later on when that's going to be subverted and i think that you know while i do see the value in it in some capacity i think it goes on too long i don't really find that the probably the first half of this movie it could really be cut down considerably um despite the very good imagery that Lars von Trier gives us um and I think that that um is pretentious too because it also kind of shows us that this film is going to have a muddled theme as you pointed out there are there's a lot of imagery there is a lot of analysis to be had uh you know, from psychological camps, you know, um, from literary elements, religious elements, all of those things have various metaphors and symbolism that's, that occurs in Antichrist. But I did not feel at the end of the movie, like I could really pinpoint what Lars von Trier really meant by all of it, which is why I kind of consider it to be somewhat of a mess because though you do it, though it, it is purposeful to have lots of different symbolism and while it is good to be able to have multiple readings of a movie by the end of the movie you kind of do want the to feel like you understood the director's overall take on what he, he is showing you Other- well, that, see, see that's where sorry to cut you off but i mean that's where kind of <clears throat> the whole notion this is where i kind of brought up like the depression thing i get it but at the end of the day, like, okay, like, what are we... If that is part of the backstory of, like, the creation of this film. And, cause, and the only reason you kind of mention this is because Lars von Trier is an auteur. So he directed it, he produced it, he wrote it, you know. What does, like, what, you know, if his depression had a lot to going into, like, the story, you know, the storytelling... What are we supposed to gleam out of these like thirty different things, you know, that he's telling us? Right. What are we What are we getting out of it? What What do we need to come away with as the the message? And I don't feel like we get that. Um, I I feel like we we can put together a lot of the symbolism and imagery, and we can come up with various elements of a theme, but I don't know that we ultimately get like the standard message that Von Trier was trying to convey. And I, I'm not sure that it's really there now. I'm not of the opinion that the director really needs to give us a concise picture or a wrap up of what they meant. Um, And I think it's fine to allow the, the viewer some leeway in interpretation but again i think that this film is a mess of imagery it has really great imagery 
um, throughout. You know, there's there's a lot of great moments and, and great uh, stylistic choices that are made. Um, shooting some of the scenes with um, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character that is like with a distorted lens, really cool because it gives you a very uh, unique look at that moment of her like running through the woods and you're seeing it kind of distorted, um, which c- gives you an off kilter feeling or the seeing quick, uh, I was say the quick edits that they, yeah, did, the, you know, the quick jump. edits where she's in a different position, really great because it breaks the barrier of what you know to be like the, the given rule of how you shoot film, you know, like over one shoulder over the opposite shoulder sort of thing. Like that's the standard mm. and shot, shot, you know, dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, I would say almost office-like, you know, like, uh, when it comes to the dialogue. Like, they'll be talking, and it'll be, like, two people in, like, you know, the shot and the frame. And then, like, as, like, the conversation's kind of shifting, they zoom in on, like, a person, you know, for the reaction. I don't know if you noticed that, but that's kind of something I kind of took. Yeah, it's, 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 sometimes it's almost voyeur-like yeah. um, to be, like, you know, kind of handheld camera sort of thing. Shot from a distance, you know, stuff like that. I, I, I like that. I think the stylistic elements that Von Trier brings to this are really interesting. And even the symbolism that he brings of, like, falling acorns, you know, the, the idea of falling in general. You know, the kid falling, falling acorns, falling birds from the sky, <laughs> you know, falling dead children. I I like it. I think it's, you know, it's good imagery. And, and it, it's shot in a stylistic way that I think it makes interesting. And then it's kind of bookended by very bland scenes of whispering and, you know, characterization. Um, well, so uh, kind of to keep talk about the, you know, thematic and what he's trying to say. You're somebody who studied literature. And one of the things you study in literature when you're in college is like, you know, artist intent versus uh audience what you know they read into it Mm -hmm. what like so what what do you think out of like those two like kind of perspectives like do you think like it's kind of like there's no real artistic like you know like because if you got all these jumbled ideas going on like maybe he's not trying to say anything specific he's just throwing a whole bunch of things out there emotionally and then we're supposed to kind of just glean from it like do you think it's more of a yeah viewer experience that we're supposed to get out of it more so than like an actual intent from him as the author yeah i kind of do actually i think that the experience sometimes is less about the message and more about the experience of that depression and that um you know that that element that that we're we're experiencing rather than understanding and I think that's fine if you um, if you do get that experience. I, I don't know that I do from Antichrist. I think that I get it in parts. I, I get the experience, you know, in certain situations. Like when the three beggars are found, you know, that are segmented in those chapters. I get that experience um, when, you know, the, the deer is it comes out of the the woods and it's you know it's got the stillborn baby in it i get it when you know he meets the fox not so much when the fox actually speaks and says chaos reigns that sort of seems like a 13 year old um (laughs) you know wrote that encounter but edge lord yeah right exactly but and then i you know just if that alone was like the fox eating itself i think that's 
enough. <laughs> we we don't need the uh, the spoken chaos reigns too. Fox eating itself is enough of a symbolic metaphor. We don't need to rest. Um, and then I you know I get it again towards the end of the movie when everything goes crazy. You know goes batshit insane, and we get a lot of that fucked up imagery and sexual mutilation and things like that. Again though, I think if we're talking about the end of the movie. I do think that Von Tur goes too far. I think, and not too far in the sense that, like, oh, I was totally disgusted by this movie, or, you know, it's it's totally inappropriate. We shouldn't watch it. Blah blah blah. Not that, not like that, but too far in that. Like, we're seeing way too much as an audience to see all of this, um, almost like you know, shock for shock's value only element. You know, because it, it's clear Von Trier wanted to get you know, erect dicks in here and he wanted to get, you know, coming blood and he wanted to get uh, genital mutilation in here. And so he did it, it, on screen, very visceral, very um, up close and personal. Yes, that's it makes you squeamish. Sure, it's a shock at first, but I think that that shock really wears off because it's really in your face and it doesn't leave much to the viewer's imagination. You're, you're you know, like you're subjected to it. You see it okay you saw it it's done you saw a clitor uh, clitoris being you know taken off scissored off okay you saw it it's done i feel like leaving more to the viewer's imagination probably would have been a little bit more successful and we wouldn't i wouldn't at least for me i wouldn't feel like we're just seeing this stuff for shock value I think, like, specifically, the the scene that I really point to, I think the general, general mutilation is fine. Like, the, the, the cutting off the clitoris, that's fine. Because I think that, that that is a really big, strong point of the film of being a mother, going through trauma, feeling, you know, especially during a, a sexuality, feeling like there's a disparity between being a mother and having sexual pleasure. I like that a lot. I like that the, the element of general mutilation and the persecution of womanhood. That imagery is fine. I think that's necessary. The one that I don't think is necessary is, you know, the whole, you know, penis masturbation after it's been smashed with wood. Like, it's really totally pointless to see that. Like, what what is the intended purpose of it? How, how did you feel about that? Like, is there a purpose to what we're seeing for that shock value? I, I mean, I get thematic, at least, with like, uh, the cutting of her, you know, cutting her clitoris off. I get it thematically. I, I still don't really appreciate it, <laughs> seeing it, because I mean I I and I'm not one and I'm not trying to brag or be braggadocious or anything, but I'm not one where like film like you know like violence and stuff really gets me. I mean broken bones kind of make me squeamish, but like general like body mutilation doesn't do it. But that those two scenes did like not like make me like oh yeah turn this off, but I was like oh god like that what, what the fuck. I I get it from like. Thematic point. I, I I don't think it was necessary to show though, and it's kind of the same thing with like you know, her bash you know bashing his dick and then you know jacking him off and you know him coming blood. Um, I don't think that was necessary. You could have just literally jumped right to her screwing you know, drilling his leg and adding an anchor to him. It's like, hey, we're uh, let's take misery and kind of up the ante, you know. What 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 Kathy Bates do here, you know? She was really fucking crazy, you know. Wanna just break his goddamn knees? This is what she would do. Like, you're my favorite author, and then like you know, Jack James Con off, you know. Like that's 
a bridge too far. Like <laughs> I, 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 it's like I, you know, it's it's it, as you said, it's trollish. Like it's. I, I, it's just, I think for shock value, it, it, it is shocking. Like it is generally, at least for me, it like both those parts are like generally shocking. Like, holy shit. Like, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I just, I don't think they're necessary parts of the film. Um, even though they, you know, they tie it to like, you know, some of the themes in this film, but I mean, uh, to me, yeah. Wasn't a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, you know it just comes off as really just for shock value, and I don't think it really adds much to any of the themes. Really, um, I it, again, like it would have been enough to show, wow, she smashed him in the dick with a with piece of wood. Like we don't need to go any further than that. I don't really see the the essence of the masturbation. Um, but I do think that Antichrist is an interesting movie because of these things. It does bring, um, it does make you th- think about it after you've seen the film for yeah, for a she's while. Gonna, she's gonna need a tetanus shot. Those are Paris. And, and and not only that, but what about Cheers. didn't uh, Willem Dafoe get like bit by like eighteen ticks in that one? Yeah, scene? isn't that what the isn't that what they were with yeah. like ticks on his arm hand? Like yeah. that guy is gonna he get Lyme, Lyme disease. He's got Lyme disease. Yeah, he's, he's got a be... broken dick and Lyme disease as he comes out of the uh, out of the woods there. Well, what bougie assholes have a fucking campsite where you got to hike like 12 miles up a mountain that's to... that's one thing that I, w- I wanted to point out too is the hike because willem dafoe is she like, took you know she what? took her she took the child up there last year by herself that's like, true uh, like like this two-year-old kid like she's got to feed fucking no wonder why she went crazy she went up there by herself having to feed this kid like graham crackers and milk on a 12 mile hike up the fucking mountains not only that but like willem dafoe says you know what I know we have a two-mile hike to this cabin because I've been there before. You know what I'm going to do, though? I'm going to wear a suit anyway. I'm going to wear a whole goddamn suit. I got a jacket on. I got my my nice... Slacks. My, yeah, my slacks and my button-down shirt tucked in. Like, the man is, like, making it look effortless to hike to this cabin in the woods, you know, in his business suit. Because he's giving therapy. He has to be serious. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, too, is, like, who puts their hand out a window like that? I've never, never in my life done that. Where I'm like, oh, it's hot in here. You know what I'm going to do? Would... Open the window and put my entire arm out it. You know what I'm not going to do? Go to a fucking camp where my cabin's underneath a bunch of fucking oak trees where acorns are going to fall relentlessly throughout the night. So all you hear is the pitter-patter of fucking acorns. It is true. I don't, I don't know why anybody would have purchased the Evil Dead cabin. Uh, you know, this just, is basically what this is like in like her writings end up being the Necronomicon. So, um, what I, I, like, <laughs> like I was at that point when he's like reading through her like thesis, I was like, don't read from the Necronomicon. Will only bad things will happen. Speak- but instead of, tr- instead of the trees raping her it they rape, she, they have sex on the tree. So, you know, <laughs> turn that around, subverting your expectation. Speaking of that, uh, moment where they, you know, where we know that, um, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character and her son went to the camp by themselves. What did you think about the the scream that she hears, like when she goes to the cabin, which really gives her that ultimate fear of the woods? 
Of like the baby? Yeah, like where she yeah. thought it was her son, but then it wasn't her son, and she went to check on him. I mean, it was. I was fine with it, but it's like the weirdest baby call. Cry. I, I thought it was. I thought it was a it's pretty like, eerie thing, actually. I, I like that like a, quite a bit. Like a, it was like a mix of like a chortle and sadness, like you know. yeah. I like that, and like I thought it was a really eerie moment within the film that it doesn't really return back to. But I thought it was really interesting. I like kind of wish like Antichrist had gone a little bit further with that element to it because I thought that was really interesting and a very um, spooky moment for the. Well, movie. I think too they could have Lars could have focused more on that too because we see like later on when they reveal. And show the autopsy of the kid and say, ah, everything was normal. He fucking fell, you know, five stories and... But his feet were a little cockeyed. And we find out mm-hmm. she's been putting his boots on wrong. Yeah. Well, that's, ni- that's nice and all. It's like a nice little point, but like... You know, obviously suggesting like she's been going through like postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Which her whole kind of arc afterwards is kind of like, you know, a continuation of postpartum. It would have been nice to see, like, maybe more of that, like, how she was with the child and, like, these scenes at the cabin. Like, what was she doing that, you know? Yeah, I kind of disagree with that, though. I kind of like it left like that with, like, the idea that, like, what... Because it kind So, we haven't really talked about the characters too much, but ultimately, we... You know, Willem Dafoe's character, you, you don't really like. You He comes across as absolutely way too smug, way too knowing on purpose and it's clear that he is in some ways you know emotionally manipulating his wife um whether he means to or not you know because at first we kind of feel like oh okay well you know he's taking this in stride and he's helping his wife the best that he can but ultimately over time it becomes more of like a power struggle between them so you don't really like him and then with with charlie gainsbourg's character there's kind of like a I don't know, like a wishy-washy nature nature with her. Like, are you supposed to like her? Are you not supposed to like her? Are you supposed to feel for her and understand what she's where she's coming from? Are you supposed to suspect her because of that scene where you get the the image of his shoes on wrong? Which I, I honestly, again, another really great element of imagery that I think it, if handled in a different way, where we, you know, this was a story about like child abuse and stuff. I think that would be really, really interesting about like the the shoes on the wrong foot it also really presents like another eeriness to it because the idea of the film's name title of antichrist while it doesn't that's not necessarily what it means it kind of evokes things like the omen in the idea of a child is the antichrist right but in this case that's really not the case but that the shoes on the wrong foot the the weirdness of his feet do kind of evoke the idea of like, oh, is this an antichrist scenario? I thought that was also really interesting, but ultimately, I don't know. So, what you're, so, so what you're saying is the kids fell out the fucking window because he had two left feet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He would have been able to catch his balance if he, his feet hadn't been totally deformed up. by yeah. putting boots on wrong. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that it all comes back to the idea of uh, mothers and womanhood and trauma of being a mother and handling those situations and uh, sometimes feeling like, you know, you're not doing the right thing for your child. I think that all comes back to that imagery. And I like that, the fact that it doesn't really dive too much into how she was as a parent. Although, you know, just from the two scenarios that we see of her and her child 
she's not great at watching the kid. I mean, not he falls out a window and she doesn't know where he is for a long period of time. And he's playing with a block of wood in a shed somewhere while she's like doing her thesis. Not a great example of her parenting skills. Yeah, let's take a, let's take a baby up to a cabin that's not even probably going to be even close to being baby proofed. Well, not only that, but it's like a fucking like you said, it's like a three mile hike through wooded areas. It's not even like there's a path or anything. It's just take the kid and hope he doesn't get a bunch of ticks on him. So you know, she doesn't set a great example from what we see, but I do. I don't think that. And this, an Antichrist has often been considered to be a misogynist film as well. And I definitely don't see that. I don't think that Lars von Trier is saying women are evil as, because that is literally what is stated in the movie. You know, it's, it's stated that Charlotte Gainsbourg character well, has. Why the fuck would you think like it's at literally saying that? Yeah, I know. That's, that's we, what I mean. you, you, you literally have a point in the film where like she's supposed to be studying like her thesis again is on, you know. The killing of women, you know, genocide. You know, and she's supposed to be like, why is that happening? And then through her, you know, her depression and anxiety and stuff, she's, you know, come to believe, you know, women really are the devil. And then Willem Dafoe is like scoffing at like that. Like, what, like, what the fuck are you doing? That's not what that, which I, maybe that comes off as like, you know, misogynistic of him being like, you dumb bitch. Like, you know. You're supposed to be studying this, and that's what you got out of it? You know, but other than that, like, no, it's not, like, you know, it's obviously, like, you know, kind of laughing at that, you know? Mm-hmm. The whole idea of this witchiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, like, the, the misogyny is certainly probably because they see like the idea of general mutilation as misogyny i don't get that though and i don't really think that we're supposed to like absolutely hate charlotte gainsbourg's character we're supposed to see the idea that well maybe she's been formed into this you know by patriarchy you know which is part of her research into women's genocide uh by her husband uh who is not very understanding even though he's a therapist and really has almost like a sociopathic tendency to understand grief. Like he really barely cares about his son's death. He cries one time and then he's pretty much over it. And that I can understand from a therapist perspective of understanding grief, but that though, I don't think it's sociopathic. You can make that a critique of how men are taught to deal with grief Mm -hmm. for the most part. Well, how are you told to handle emotions? Tamp it down. Don't be emotional. Don't cry. You know, don't show, you know, that's weakness for a man. Tamp it down. So you can take it at that, you know, that that's what he's doing. He's, at, you know, playing that part out. I honestly think they're both contemptible people, though. I, I don't, I think it's supposed to be kind of the, it's like, because it, again, with all the Abrahamic imagery of it being the Garden of Eden and these two being Adam and Eve, basically. Um, I think it's basically supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be a, a even more corrupted view. They're both very contemptible people. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't find myself liking either one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, towards the end, even though, you know, we go through this experience and Willem Dafoe makes it out alive, you know, and we see all those women 
coming towards him, coming at him, and you know, moving through the woods, and that's you know supposed to represent the um, the a mass of women genocide. Um, I don't think that we're supposed to side with Willem Dafoe there. I don't think it's meant to be a misogynistic statement of, look, women are evil. Look what she did. You know, she's crazy. She, she, she you know, she chopped it. She, she's hacked at his penis and chopped off her own clitoris. The um, clitoris chopping off is even more disturbing than him getting hit in the dick. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the blood, you know, him ejaculating blood. Like, that's like, you know, it's unsettling, but the close-up of Charlotte Gainsbourg's twat being, you know, mutilated, that's, you know, that's a little much. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm really conflicted about this movie. I am not sure whether I actually enjoy it or not. I don't. And and actually, let's let's do this now. Do you think that Antichrist is a difficult film? Um, sort of. I think it's difficult in the fact that, in a non-serious way, it would be saying this: the first thirty-five minutes of this film is a fucking slog. You know, it basically takes thirty-five minutes to get to the fucking cabin to get to you know part two of this film it's a slog listening to them whisper at the hospital and have their as you said 13 year old you know discussions on grief is trying it's very trying because you're just like when will it end this the suffering and the prologue is just goofy even though there is like again like very there's things to you know be warranted there like it's all shot very well the edits are great you know very stylistic and done with an artist you know in a certain point of view all the, like the montages that we see of like you know these visions that Willem Dafoe is seeing and that Carol Gainsbourg is seeing Charlotte sorry Charlotte keep fucking that up <laughs> Uh, it's it's really it's well done and you know if you're really into like the kind of like the artistry of film it is very interesting but it again a third of this film from the beginning is a absolute slog to get through when you get to the cabin then like things really start to go however it's fine but I don't think it, you know, what it's doing is really difficult. I think the only really difficult parts for me were the, just the genital mutilation because it was just like, oh god, what the fuck am I, you know, what am I doing? Like the hardcore, you know, the penetrative sex and, you know, the upping the ante of like, you know, her state of masochism when it comes to the sex. It's fine. It does take a quite the leap though you go from like you know she wants to have sex out of grief and then she says like hit me and then she chops you know hits him in the dick and then jacks him off it's, it's you know quite the jump but uh I, I i wouldn't say it's like overly difficult like i'm not traumatized by it or anything but it's definitely it's definitely an interesting film that has a lot of ideas it's definitely something that I wouldn't find myself 
constantly revisiting. It's so I, I I don't I don't know if that makes it difficult or not. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, out of all the films that we've done so far, I say it's the most difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, more so than Hereditary, Funny Games, and Requiem for a Dream. But like, I didn't really think any of those films were really difficult. So that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really. So this is one that I don't really think is difficult. Um, I didn't really find you know even like the shock value of seeing, you know, genital mutilation. I don't really find it too difficult. Um. And I don't really find the trauma of the movie all that difficult either because it is, you know, subject to hardcore pornography that kind of takes you out of the <laughs> the realistic nature of this experience. Um, I uh, So I think that Lars von Trier actually ventures too far into, like, trying to be too real uh, and, and it ultimately makes it seem too comical, you know, overtly comical. And that's why I I almost sometimes felt like there's like a dark humor running through this movie because it is a little bit on the the cheesy side when it comes to overtly showing all of this um, grisliness. Um, And and, and at a certain point, too, you kind of have to laugh at like how dour and depressed this movie is. Like it, it is sometimes, you know, I would say like a I don't know, like a like a. 13 year old's version of being depressed sometimes um with that said i think like the the symbolism and stuff is is really good so i don't want to like totally downplay the idea of it being a difficult film and certainly if you can't handle you know your your gore and explicit violence especially sexual violence then it's probably going to be a difficult film for you but for me it wasn't really that difficult and you're right i wouldn't return to this film but it's not because it's difficult it's because in the in the sense that it's hard to watch it's hard to watch because it is oftentimes just boring so it does make me want to watch more Lars von Trier films just kind of see like you know okay you know what do you got yeah i agree (laughs) I am curious to see, and you know, like I like we said, you know, I like his. I think the imagery sometimes is really good, so I'm I'm curious to see what he can do with that. But but imagery in a in a you know almost two hour movie don't always mix. Like you can have good imagery, and you should be a music video you know director. <laughs> you don't sometimes need a two hour film to get your imagery across. So. Or as uh, Nymphomaniac is uncut, it's uh, 325 minutes long. Right, right. So, you know, there's a difference between offering up occasionally good imagery and having a very solid story to deliver that imagery. And I think with Antichrist, that's not always the case. Um... So that leads us to our rating. So on a scale of 0 to 10 black metal foxes, what would you give Antichrist? <sighs> kind of debated with myself all day with what I'd rate it because I honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd give it a 6.5. Mm-hmm. Um, like again, I think Lars von Trier shows in this film that he has a very keen artistic eye. It has a very good idea 
of how to emotionally convey and show what he's trying to do through the cuts, through the editing, through the shots, through the direction. It's an incredibly well-made film. And I think Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg, they do a really good job. There literally are only two players in this film outside of the baby. Um, I think he has a lot of interesting ideas. That being said, I think it's a muddled mess. I, you know, between like the Adam and Eve analogies, uh, the depressive analogies, the therapy analogies, it's... What you're trying to glean from it is, I, I, I don't know. Like, if, if I, you know, like, trying to see what, like, he, he's trying to convey in this film itself is really hard to. And maybe he's not trying to, and it's just supposed to be emotive, and we're supposed to kind of glean something from it. I don't know. Um, but I think because of that, there is, like, an, there is a sensory overload on what you're trying to experience here. Um, I think Hereditary is kind of like a perfect companion piece to this that's done, you know, a much better film of this. It's, you know, got the same beats, basically, of grief, of, you know, this isolation in the Northwest. It's just a better, you know, more well-rounded film that kind of fits the same, same beats and hits the same notes as this film does. Um... I, th- I think the imagery in this film is good. I, like, again, I think the genital mutilation is a little over the top, even for me. I mean, you may have found it comical, but, I mean, you've watched more, you know, body, you know, horror than I have. So, you you know, you're more numb to it. But, like, you know, that's a little <laughs> still, like, just kind of, like, thinking about it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, like, again, I think it's a, a well-made film. It has like a lot of ideas out there, it, but again, I don't think because I mean it is kind of poorly paced. The first third of the film is a slog to get through. I think you could have done this film in probably like an hour and twenty minutes, an hour twenty-five, and it might have been a lot, you know, tighter, snappier of a film. Um, at points, it just kind of goes into the realm of being pretentious and over the top, and like, let's come on, let's move move it along. Uh, however, that being said, I would, I would, you know, venture to see other Lars von Trier films. I'm intrigued to kind of see how his you know filmography goes from here. Mm-hmm. Um, but six and a half, you know, which is, uh, is a D plus here, so. Yeah, I would probably I would give it a six. I, I was really and still not exactly sure how I feel about the film. Like if I really like it or not like it. I don't think that I dislike it, but I don't think that I'm as taken with it as some other people are. Um, I think that it's an interesting movie. It does have its shock value. It does have um, elements that I think are that work really well. I think some of the imagery works. Uh, very well and then i think that it's almost peppered with uh, um you know imagery and symbolism to the point where it loses some of the value of all of that because there's just so much that you're you're kind of bombarded with it and you know to try to make 
sense of the religious allegories and the uh, tr- the depression elements and the psychological element, the Jungian elements, um, you know, and the re- you know all of those things together uh, make it kind of a muddled mess of symbolism, you know, and mixed metaphor. And 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 to be honest with you, the analysis that you get out of it for everyone is going to be a little bit different, um, which is fine, you know, reader or viewer analysis not matching the artist's intention is always a possibility and i think that that's fine but i don't really ever get the point of to the point where i i say you know i can kind of understand what Lars von Trier was trying to say here i'm i'm honestly still not really sure um what his ultimate point was and i th- i think you know ultimately it was something about misogyny and um, with, with female persecution and, and motherhood and trauma, but I don't know if I can pinpoint it specifically. And I think that's an, that's an issue. You know, you can have all the symbolism you want, but if it doesn't lead back to the viewer really gleaning a specific, uh, element from the theme, then you, you kind of failed. And I think like, that's kind of the, the whole crux of antichrist. It's, it's a, a series of good imagery intermixed with some very bland and somewhat, um, generic storytelling about depression. And I think that's why it's not as good of a movie as I was hoping it would be, um, or as difficult of a movie as I was thinking it would be. So that's why I'm giving it a six. I think it's, it's okay. Um, I certainly am probably not going to watch it anytime soon. Um, but I would be interested in seeing another Von Trier movie to see what else he does, especially in his depression trilogy. I'm, I'm interested in how else he tackles depression outside of something like this, which is, you know, based around trauma. So. Do you see the hereditary aspects of it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I definitely hereditary. see uh, yeah. hereditary aspects. And, you know, there's even a scene in here where she says, I want to die. And it's just kind of like very similar to the scene in hereditary where, uh, Tony Collette says that, except way more excruciating and hereditary than in this movie. Um, and I think that that's, you know, just a difference of how it's portrayed. But I I do I do see the uh, the similarities. And I think that hereditary does the element of tragedy and trauma better than Antichrist does it. But I think Antichrist has some eeriness and like um Boshian, you know, witchcrafty elements that hereditary doesn't do as well. So it's kind of interesting. Alright, so that brings us to the end of difficult films. Uh we hope you enjoyed this foray into difficult films. And uh if you have other films that you'd like for us to cover that you find difficult, please uh send them our way. You can email us at blood black podcast at gmail.com. Let us know uh what we should do for difficult films month part two. Uh, what do we got coming up? I think we wanted to do Doctor Strange, right? Uh, in the um, Multiverse of Madness. Sam Raimi's glorious return to film. That's right. Um, <laughs> what else do we got? We got we've got June coming up. I don't know if there's anything specifically we want to do for June. Jeff Goldblum month marathon two. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to talk about it and see if we can come up with some uh, some additional fun ideas to do. Um, you know this podcast. We we go on a fly by the prayer. seat of our pants. It's a fly by night. I don't think we're gonna be back next week. We'll probably take a week off and then 
then come back. Um, and we'll do the multiverse of madness if we can if we can get to it. Um, that'd be a good one to do. Other than that, we'll we'll talk about it and we'll come up with some more ideas. And you know, who knows? Maybe we'll do another themed month at some point here. Is it time for? Uh, let's see. So we did '90s remake. We. No, we no, we, we did ninety uh, slasher month. Sorry, ninety slasher month. Yeah. Is it time oh, for away. is it time for eighty slasher month? No, because that's been half the podcast. Is it time for oh oh slasher month? That's mm, been the other half the podcast. Seventies Jello month. You know, I mean, seeing as the podcast was supposed to be, you know, uh, based on getting me to watch Jallos. <laughs> That would be a start. Uh, shark month? Shark? No. Discoveries no. shark month? No. Yeah. What about, uh... You could do, like, a vigilante month. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to... Yeah, I mean, Poliziateski. Oh, you know what? We haven't done a Poliziateski. Let me find one. It's a... I was going to say, that's a genre that you said is really fun. Mm-hmm. Sword and sandal. Who knows? <laughs> We're gonna do Ben Hur, folks. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what we've got up our sleeves? So, but if you wanna, if you wanna know, if you wanna keep checking in on us, make sure that you subscribe to us on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, our home base at Anchor.fm, uh, Good Pods. Leave us a nice review on there. Appreciate that. We are on Facebook and Twitter. You can just search for us on there, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. Give us a like or a follow. And like I said, we have an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. You can write to us. Let us know any suggestions for films. And as always, you can donate to us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bloodandblackrumpodcast. Um, anything you, you donate, donate, we'll put towards beer. So thanks a lot. So ends our Difficult Films Month. Anything else that you have to add about Difficult Films before we sign off entirely? Well, that's about it. It was a good experience. I'm uh, glad. I'm glad. That was the that was the sole goal, is to make it a... I think it's usually when we do these themed months, it's nothing but schlock and shit. But <laughs> this time, uh, all four films are stuff that stands out on their own merit. Interesting experiences all around so i'm glad for that i'm glad oh you know what i, I speaking of you know what we could do we could do a paul verhoven month oh there you go showgirls it's time for showgirls have you ever seen showgirls not entirely oh. no oh it's a goodie <laughs> it's a goodie <laughs> all right well thanks for listening to our difficult films month we hope you enjoyed and until next time take care